Welcome, welcome, welcome to this. Oh my gosh, it's almost pheasant hunting season podcast edition of the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks Podcast and Blast. I am your host, Chris Hall. We got uh, communications manager Nick Harrington riding a shotgun with me as usual or as always. Gonna say, do I get my co host status official yet? Or am I still in? I mean, probably be, I guess. I all right, co host Nick Harrington, uh, to correct Mr. Hole. <laughs> and uh, we got in the hot seat today, we got probably one of uh, becoming one of the most popular or at least talked to, searched for people in our department. We have senior upland game biologist Alex Solom out of here on today. How are we doing, Alex? I'm doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, you're you're not wrong with that. Come about uh, two weeks from now, my phone's usually ringing off the hook with hunters looking for tips and tricks and where to go and how the birds look in and uh, yeah, kind of any little nugget that I can provide to them to make their make their trip a good one. So would you feel more comfortable if I just called you right now, acted like a hunter, and we just had that conversation? Would you like a couple practice runs, or should we just try to knock that out here? You know what? It's actually, I've actually started fielding some, even in the beginning part, or like the middle to beginning of June. And, you know, I appreciate everybody's, you know, enthusiasm with it, but it's just like, guys, nesting season hasn't even done, you know, like, right. we, yeah. we don't even really know or know what to expect out there yet, and haven't really heard that many reports, and don't want to put the horse before the cart by any means, but... Um, yeah, I just kind of had to temper their expectations a little bit and say, you know what, give me a call in about a month and a half and I'll, right. I can give you way better info. Right. Well, um, a lot of people, if you've ever been to the fair, the state fair in Huron, uh, the last few years, if you think it looks awesome, which it does, a lot of it also has to do with Alex's as duties deemed necessary. Alex and his crew there in Huron do an awesome job kind of getting everything ready for the fair, painting the cement pond and getting the grass mowed and standing benches and stuff so i'm gonna say thank you for that uh first but alex let's get into your background stuff where are you from so i'm originally from southwest minnesota i grew up in a small town um called rushmore uh just about 10 miles outside of worthington right on i-90 and it's kind of ironic that i did move to the you know mount rushmore state and i probably can't count how many times we had folks tourists from out east actually stop in our our little town of like 150 <laughs> people and say, I thought, you know, it's kind of like dumb and dumber where it's like, right, I, exactly. I expected it to be a lot more hilly. Where are the faces? And we just say, oh, about 700 miles to the west. You know, you're right. you're 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 close, but you're not quite there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I grew up there, you know, went to Worthington High School, um, graduated, uh, attended uh, South Dakota State University, um, where I also did my my master's, um, did a project on nesting ducks and pheasants. Um, so kind of a been a bird nerd for a long time um and it kind of was a passion and uh you know i had the opportunity to work for the department i think in 2012 2011 started out as a, a kind of a resource biologist um got to do a lot of fun stuff working in the field actually handling birds um doing some research and that sort of stuff and um just kind of worked my way up the chain got the opportunity to be our senior bio last year um and yeah it's uh definitely been a learning curve but i've been been in the upland game sector for um, good portion of 10 years, so I think I got a fairly decent handle on it, but um, certainly learning every something new every day. Well, what do you got for family? I know I, see I have a, there. Yeah, I have a, I have a, a beautiful wife, Sarah. She's a pharmacist uh, in town here at Lewis, so I'll, I'll put a plug in for her, give her a little bit of business. Um, <laughs> but then I also have, uh, not that they need it, they're pretty busy anyways. Um, <laughs> 
but I do have uh, an, a son, uh, Kellen, who's eight years old, almost about to turn nine here in a couple weeks in August. Um, so he keeps me busy with coaching baseball, football, soccer, uh, hockey. Um, wouldn't be surprised if one of these days we do swim team or what have you. I mean, it, he just, he's kind of a ball and stick kid. He never, uh, never really played with toys, always did sporting stuff. So with me being pretty active in sports, I, I really enjoy that. And then I have a little spitfire of a daughter who's, uh, exactly like her mom, which, um, believe it or not, is probably the greatest thing in the world. I don't think I have to, you know, worry about her, um, you know, when she goes into, goes, gets into high school. Um, thankfully my dad's the County Sheriff here. Um, I'm kind of hoping, you know, he's thinking about maybe retiring. I hope he stays on for at least 10 more years till he <laughs> makes it through high school. Um, but I don't think I'm going to get that lucky. Uh, but yeah, I have a great family, uh, run a yellow lab named Miley. Um, she's 11. So I'm actually picking up another pup in, Oh, six weeks actually. So i nice. um, doing the whole uh, two dog thing for a while. And yeah, I love to hunt. Um, anything with feathers, just starting to get a little bit into big game, but I nothing better than chasing a grouse or a rooster. Bo can definitely help with the two dog game. I think he runs the four and five dog yeah. game before. I think is the max five. Is uh, that what it yeah, was? I got three right now. So <laughs> it's, yeah, that's uh, a I'm busy enough. I don't know if I. I don't know if I can handle that. Your, kid, your, say, your daughter's a little older too, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, go ahead. I, I was gonna say too. You're just getting started too with the family activities. Eight years old. I mean that. That's not even peak sports right. yet. Too. Yeah. That's still what you're figuring out which one you like, and then you got to hone in on it. I know. So, I know. We're pretty. So, we're pretty committed to to baseball and hockey. So I'm trying to convert. Hockey. Trying to convert them a little bit into a more of a golf type fan. You know, I played. Played football in uh, high school and two years of college, and my knees and my shoulders hurt, and I'm I golf a heck of a lot more than I play football right now. So I'm trying to relay that to him. You're different than you're different than my dad, though. I was not allowed to golf because we were worried it was going to impact my baseball swings. Right. So I mean, I, I, I but I wasn't a home run hitter either by any stretch of the imagination. La- launch angle wasn't there wasn't much launch angle there. You <laughs> said how long you've been working for the department, and I kind of wrinkled my nose, and I was like, no way. And then I'm like, wait, I remember when his son was born. And like helping at the fairgrounds, and then you're like, I'm out for, you know, the days or whatever. And then I'd see you guys in the fair, and like literally in a stroller, like baby, baby, baby. Like, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's been a while. You're no longer the young buck, I guess. Um, and I certainly am not. So. Oh, seasoned vet. Right. So let's talk about before we get into what we're looking for this year. Let's talk about last last season and and how that went like through your eyes. And and we can talk about some of the harvest survey stuff even and how we get those populations and harvest and all that stuff. Yeah. So um, last year, all around, it was a pretty dang good season. I mean, come October and November, we had some awesome weather. Um you know, one of the tough challenges that you get with, you know, October, you guys know, um, sometimes you're hunting in a t-shirt or, you know, uh, even a cutoff, uh, come pheasant opener, it's 70 degrees, 80 degrees. I've, heck, I've hunted when it's 90, um, you know, and it gets tough. There's, there's definitely birds out there and that sort of thing, but we had a, a pretty decent October, really kind of mild November. Um, saw a lot of guys out hunting, uh, you know, around the Huron area. That's generally where I kind of um, out and about within maybe 30, 40 miles of, of town. Um, did awesome. Saw a ton of birds. Crop progress was good. So that really helped out. Um, you know, we didn't have one of those wet falls where 
corn stays in till Thanksgiving. I mean, you obviously you get you get some guys that just aren't in a hurry, and you know that it's kind of nice sometimes because it acts as almost a refuge for birds. You right, know, mm-hmm. keeps them from getting uh, getting picked on for the entire length of the season. Um, so come December and January when you get a little bit of snow on the ground it, and it turns really good, um, you know those ones almost you know seem a little less educated. A um, little more opportunity, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but d- then, you know, when December hit, we had about a week and a half to two weeks of pretty darn good hunting. You know, we had about a couple inches of snow on the ground, and that's that's when I love to hunt. Is yep, yep. when you got some snow, you can watch the dirt, the dogs walk or work. Excuse me, you don't have to worry about them overheating, um, anything like that. They can hunt all day. You can hunt all day. Um, birds bunch up, and you know, in the cover, you know exactly where they're going to be. It's not that. There's a you know a rhyme or reason to it, or just kind of random spots that you normally would in maybe October, beginning of November. Um, but then you know we got we got hit with some pretty substantial snowfalls, which obviously didn't stop people from hunting. I mean, even in my position, I I fielded a lot of calls from non-residents, even residents alike. Um, you know, maybe they were traveling up from Sioux Falls. Um, you know, some places out west. You know, what what are the conditions? It wasn't impossible. It certainly made it a little bit, a little bit more challenging. Um, you know, some of the roads around here, if they're not well traveled, they're not going to be plowed. So there's plenty of spots that probably didn't even see a hunter from December to you know mid December to the end of the season. Um, and the snow just kind of kept coming. Um, made it certainly challenging. Uh, so you know, when I kind of think about it, uh, we harvested you know over 1.1 million pheasants last year. Um, and in all reality, we pretty much missed out on about a month and a half of the season. Um, I mean, granted there, there was people out hunting. I was, I was one of those crazy guys too. I, you know, I was 20 below with wind chill and, um, you know, I'm out there with up to my waist in a cattail slough chasing birds. Uh, my wife thinks I'm crazy. My dogs, I'm not, I'm her idol because that's all she wants to do, you know, um, still seeing a lot, but, uh. Yeah, it, it it they just it just made them tougher to kill, um, tougher to harvest. But uh, you know, all in all, I think it was pretty good, and it just really kind of shows how good last year really really was in in perspective for bird numbers. And I, you know, I was gonna say that too, Alex. You kind of when you started there, you talked about how that really good hunting doesn't really start until we start getting that snow on the ground. And Hole and I have talked about this all the time. But I mean, right when it was getting really good, it just we kind of. It was two weeks of it, and it was done, right? So, I mean, we lost a month, month and a half of that really good time, too. So, I mean, I think, like you said, that really stands out to me of just how how good the season was, knowing even compared to, because that would have been the, the third year of the extended season. Yeah. And, and I mean, we didn't, Mother yeah. Nature wasn't playing very nice like she was the previous two seasons. So, those are just some of my thoughts that stood out to me right away. Yeah, and me, too, and in it is amazing that we got to that number of pheasants harvested. Alex, explain a little bit how that harvest survey and how you come up with that number, how you crunch all those numbers. Where do they come from? Yeah, so um, we take a random sample of resident and non-resident license holders, uh, small game holders, per, I should say. Um, so we take 15,000 residents and 15,000 non-residents, uh, send them out a survey, uh, you know, we ask where they hunt, how many days they hunted, an estimate of how many birds they harvested, and all that sort of stuff. And then we essentially crunch the numbers and, you know, kind of project it out into uh, a statewide or at least a county level estimate. And then we sum up all the totals of those those counties for not only number of hunters, but then uh, total harvest. And that's where we get our get our estimates, um, you know, because it, it is a 
kind of a scientific procedure. We're able to get some confidence intervals around around our harvest estimates, so we we know how confident we are and you know what our what the total number is um, and that sort of stuff. So it, you know it's just a, a survey, random survey. Um, it's kind of ironic, you know. I've hunted in South Dakota for 15 years, and I, I have I've never gotten one. Um, I I like to uh, you know have to say maybe uh, that's a good thing because then I don't you know overinflate Beetle County's harvest estimate. <laughs> uh, and I can keep that keep that kind of lighter on the the harvest per square mile map, and people might overlook it a little bit more. <laughs> I, I think that secret's out there, but I'm sorry, but oh, you know, I forgot this say, was being recorded. I was going to say, yeah. you know, that wasn't exactly, you're better off writing it on the harvest survey right. at that point. <laughs> yeah. So of all those surveys we send the folks, how many folks do we actually hear back on? How What do we get for responses? Uh, we get anywhere from like 30 to 50% response oh, rate. Wow. You know, it's obviously variable from year to year. Um and it, it really, it just depends. I mean, when we were transitioning, um, you know, to new licensing and systems and stuff like that, we were trying out different means of, of doing it. Um, and it, it obviously depends on who the survey is getting to. Uh, you know, younger folks that are more familiar with the way we do it now, um, with kind of the app that we send out to, for those estimates, I mean, they're going to feel a heck of a lot more comfortable putting in uh, the information, how to operate it, you know, without... Uh, compared to maybe some of the, the older crowds that still have those types of license types that we do survey. Um, and they're, they're probably more likely to do it as well. But um, like I, I say, most guys that walk in here that get a little frustrated, they pull a, a smartphone out of their pocket and they know how to operate that and just don't have to be afraid to point and click and you're not going to really screw anything up. Right. We're a big proponent of, of when we get guys on like you and Rocco and, and a few others to talk about those surveys and go look we know you know because you hear it too all the time god you guys so you know if i've got an elk tag a east river tag a west river tag uh archery tag small game and duck you know it's it just seems like some years it's like, man i got drew for everything and i'm i'm getting harvest surveys but what is this one now and now i've got youth and mentor surveys and but they really are important because it plays a big part into what we hear from the folks plays a big part into what we can do going down the line for management. And, and so it's, we're a big, big proponent of that. So we always try to figure out how to ask folks, our guests, like, you know, the, the surveys and what's behind it and what goes into it. So important stuff. If you get it, you should feel honored because you're one of 15,000. Yeah. You, I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a great tool to biologists to have in their toolbox. I mean, um, it's, we don't, we don't just look at one thing. We look at a multitude of things, and we, you know, obviously we're kind of we want to keep people happy with bird numbers because that means we're doing a good job. We got the habitat to support the birds. We got the access to, for guys to go out there and hunt them, and it, you know, it's kind of the mission of our department, um, you know, which is really nice. So it's yeah, it's it's a super important and yeah, like Chris said, I encourage anybody that gets it, please take the time to take it. It only takes a few minutes, um, and it tells us a, a pretty important part of the story. And in reality, even when you get all those surveys, you're still going to spend less time filling out the surveys than you do standing in line at the post office. Right. Yeah. Maybe not in Beetle County, but definitely <laughs> here in the pair. Yeah. I got to type in a lot of digits for uh, how many birds did you, how many days did you hunt and how many birds right. did you harvest? Right. Well, that's true. That's true. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I think everybody that I've talked to is, is, you know, especially now once you start seeing broods of pheasants and we're getting closer and you know, people are working their dogs and trying to get some of that fat off their lazy labs and doing some of that stuff. Everybody's talking about that great white wolf, right? The winter. 
and winter survivability of pheasants and stuff. And what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And and just talk about some of that stuff and even the the habitat and quality habitat and how that plays into the game. Yeah, I mean, winter winter is obviously one of those really important um, type aspects when it comes to just overall pheasant ecology. Um, pheasants are really short-lived species to begin with. So when you add a harsh winter, especially in South Dakota where it's blowing snow, it's harder to eat, you know, birds have to go out and forage for longer to just even survive, produce the type of, produce the energy to even stay warm. Um, you know, anytime you add a lot of snow into the mixture, it, it certainly affects survival. You know, generally speaking, um, on average, pheasants have roughly a 60% annual survival. Um, so it, it's a lot lower than what people would think. Um, so carry over to the next spring is obviously important because you want to have the most you want to have the most birds there available for the nesting season through winter because um, the one kind of kind of two of the really important parameters when it comes to ecology is overwinter survival and then recruitment or bringing those chicks that hatch from the nest to the fall that so they're available for hunters to hunters to harvest. Um, so when you have hard winters you generally see lower survival um overall and kind of to put it in perspective um you know it, it's all related to habitat you know if you have it, it's surprising how some research products that we've had and even even in the state how well birds actually do um even in really harsh conditions if they're located in good quality habitat you know we're talking um really thick cattail sloughs that get them out of the wind where they can hide and not be you know not be picked off by predators um you know good shelter belts that are at least eight to 16 rows wide a low growing shrub shrubs that stop a lot of stop a lot stop a lot of wind um you know they're put in the right places so they can they kind of berm up the snow on the north side and they're open up on the south side uh you know next to food plots to um available food sources all that sort of stuff like i said it's it's super surprising how good birds can do even in the harshest conditions um you know inevitably when you do like i said when you do have a a hard winter um you are going to see some sort of decrease in survival um it just happens and depending on where they are in the landscape you know if they're in very marginal habitat caught out in the open where there's not a lot of cover for them like you might see anywhere from five to twenty percent survival um, which is it's never a good thing. That's not not what you want to see. But if you're like I said, you're in a good area where they got lots of good quality winter habitat, lots of food resources, all that sort of stuff. I mean, even in a bad winter, they can still get upwards of eighty percent. Right. Wow. I'll I'll give you this one quick. I was we've got a place south of here, and it's uh, as far as pheasant hunters go, it's certainly off the map or off the radar. Um, but they grow a lot of winter wheat, so we get good good conditions and good areas for them to for the for them to nest but uh, i went down i got a call the day before christmas eve that my furnace had gone out and i'm like oh boy so i get down there and i'm working on it and i'm freaking out and and it was we had 20 foot snow drifts in our in our cedar tree breaks you know and literally have a picture of deer eating standing on the top of a 20 foot snow drift eating the top of my giant cedar trees and I spent, <laughs> excuse me, I spent three days down there working and trying to get it fixed with a plumber and all this stuff. It's like the under, like in-floor heating and all this stuff. And I'm kind of in between there. I'm picking around looking and there's dead pheasants. And I'm just like, oh, God, you know, you work so hard and there's dead pheasants everywhere. And it's icy going home and it's icy coming down and I'm just miserable. And I'm 
thinking this is it. You know, I'm done with this. I'm selling everything. I'm, I'm, I'm done. And my neighbor comes up and, and he, he, uh, he goes, let's go take a drive around. And I go, I don't have time. He goes, no, let's go drive around. He's like, let's take an hour and go drive around. I'm like, okay. So I jump in the truck and we drive about, oh, probably three quarters of a mile from our place. He's got an old feedlot that's all kosher weeds and he's got a pretty good, it's a dam. It's not a stock pond, but it's a dam. It's got good thermal cover all the way around it. And in between his place and a bunch of shelter belts and this stuff, he's got a giant silage pile and there's 1,200 pheasants eating on a silage pile. And he goes, it's fine. You know, yeah, there's a lot of dead ones, but man, look at this, you know, and I was just, oh, you know, a big deep breath. And we drive further and we get closer to these bigger like feeder cricks that go into the White River and they're rough. You know, those West, West River draws, they're deep. There's good pockets of buck brush and stuff. And everywhere we went, man, they're just grouse and pheasants blowing out and there's deer running around and there's turkeys sitting up on top of the trees and turn around and that's after probably one of the worst storms i've seen in in central south dakota since i've been here and i went man you know that it does kind of put it into perspective we get lucky because of my location because there's a good food source and there's good you know there's some good thermal cover but like even up in roberts county when i was up there in the you know for christmas and stuff that's a whole different amount of snow. <laughs> You're like, oh my God. And everywhere there was, you know, sloughs, even if they looked like they were full, man, you saw pheasants scratching around and a lot of them. And so it's like, okay, I get it that they're all, you know, they're moving from three or four miles away and finding this better cover. But it's just like, man, I forget how tough and hardy these birds really are if you have those things available that they can survive. And it starts with quality habitat. Yeah, absolutely. And and I will second too. I really thought there was going to be a, a, a hunting operation down south of Draper for sale at a very nice price. So I, if I was smart, I probably would have struck on you that day that right. you were headed down there because I probably could have got that for the money with yeah. my wallet at that yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah, and I, don't get me wrong. It was it was certainly a, a challenging winter. I mean, it for sure. There we had snow on the ground from the middle of this or beginning of December to heck, even some places in early May, which is never a good thing, but. You know, when you put it in perspective, I, th I think so many people have such a short-term memory that the last two winters we had were so incredibly easy, where we're talking total of 12 inches in eastern South Dakota for cumulative snowfall from November to March, which is absolutely unheard of when your average is, you know, roughly 40. And, you know, right. I've, I've run the numbers. I've, I'm a numbers guy. I like to be really analytical with the decisions that I make and, you know, make every, every kind of inference that I'm doing is going to be informed. And there is... Plenty of spots in South Dakota that were maybe 30 to 40 to even 50% above their average annual snowfall. But there was a really good chunk of what I would consider probably the primary, you know, James River Valley, the stronghold right. where we've always had good pheasant numbers. We always have consistent harvest, consistent bird numbers um, that was right around average. I mean, it was up a little bit, but when you're talking, you know, 15 to 20% above average, you're talking an extra six inches of snow. Right. Yep. So, yep. and it... Coming off of a drought, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the moisture that we get in South Dakota comes from snow. So I mean, it, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. Where yeah, it could be the I call it you know the prairie purge where it's just white out and it just kind of kills everything. But at the same time, like that's how new life gets you know brought into the state in the spring. Right, and I think a little bit of it, honestly, Alex, was we just got that big first slobberknocker storm. Right, it was just like oh, and it was kind of early. I mean, not really early, but for Pierre. 
it was kind of early and it was just like, oh my God, this is Armageddon. You know, it all came at once. And maybe that's not the worst thing. I mean, you get through that first one and everything calms down. And we didn't get those big long stretches of cold where everything just freezes up too. These birds were scratching around in a little bit of more snow than they're used to, maybe. It's well down in my area anyway. But they're getting around and they're scratching stuff open and they're finding some food here and there, especially in those areas with good with good cover and good food sources available. So I think part of it was just we just got that big slobber knocker storm and then we got a week or ten days off and then we got another one. And then everything kind of leveled off, really. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we do know that uh, like those blizzard periods are, are certainly when you can see some reduced mortality in birds. Uh, you know, the, the actual snowfall generally doesn't kill pheasants. It's having to go out there and forage longer where they're, you know, t- taken by their mammalian or, or avian predators and right. things like that. And it's when you get those really hard, long winters where, like you said, we, we got breaks in between snowstorms. I remember going to pier for a hockey tournament for my son. And it's 40 degrees there in the middle yeah. of January. And you know, we get from just outside of Miller and it's just like, when did they, they never even got snow. You right. know, it was like, you could see some in the, in the fence lines and things like that, but the grass was, wasn't green, but you could see the grass, you could see the corn right. stubble, you know, it was kind of one of those good opportunity breaks where, you know, birds, they might've been in fairly poor condition when the snowstorms were actually occurring for a couple of days, but there was enough time in between them that I think they could maybe recover and kind of not necessarily gain back, you know, what they lost from the storms. Cause that's, it's hard when you live outside in the prairie in January. Um, but at least you could uh, not go down any further. Right. So, so Alex, and I think you bring up a great point too here that we have such short memories as humans that I, I think we were at what, three and a half inches of snow in pier two years ago or three yeah. years ago. That I mean, we literally got more in an hour during that first snowstorm right. than we did all of one winter. Right. Um, so yeah, that, it's, uh, you know, the average of extremes, right? That's what the prairie is. You're going to have drought and then you're going to have a ton of, and it ends up being about an average. Right. And then maybe one year, if we're really lucky, we'll actually have an average year. Um, <laughs> Tell me what that is. <laughs> but I mean, that kind of, that kind of leads us to like, so we're coming out of this. You talked about how important this moisture is on the landscape. What did that kind of set up for the spring, especially compared to where we had been sitting, you know, coming out of the winter of 2021 and winter of 2022? How in better or worse shape are we sitting based on all those snowfalls once, you know, the sun actually started coming out and we realized that summer would indeed come back to South Dakota? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think we were we were certainly teetering on some pretty um, – some pretty delicate areas there where, you know, they were, they were in a drought for quite a long time. Um, maybe not in like the extreme droughts that, you know, Kansas has had and all that sort of stuff, or even Nebraska, but enough to where like your vegetation was starting to get stunted. You know, we really needed some sort of moisture just to even get the grass to grow the next fall. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've friends with a lot of ranchers and they, they would rather have the moisture in April and May. I totally would too. I get it. You know, it's, it makes everything harder when there's snow on the ground. You got to move stuff to just even feed. You got to dig out bunks and all that sort of thing. But I really think that we were pretty lucky because a lot of those snowstorms, it wasn't just the, um, you know, the delicate, fine powder stuff where there isn't a lot of moisture in it. We actually had some snow that had some volume to it. Um, melted off, you know, like I said, it, it did persist on the landscape probably a little bit more than most people wanted to, but our May was so freaking nice that it just, it soaked right up. Guys were able to get in the field and plant, really got that grass to pop. You know, we had, I think 90 degree temperatures in May. Um, and generally when you get a cold 
snowy winter, that's when those prolonged springs come where it's it's cold and wet as well. And we know that hampers pheasant production, but we didn't really have that. It just went from winter to summer. Um, and then it really set us up to for a pretty phenomenal nesting season. I mean, I can't even, I can't remember, uh, you know, the time that it really hasn't been, it's been this good, uh, at least weather wise. Seems like there's certain areas of the state that obviously like they've missed out on some rainfall and, you know, they didn't get quite as much snow and, you know, they're probably more on the drought monitor than they want to be or what we think. Um, but at least like in our area, and I know Pier West River particularly, like it's just been really good rains. They've come at the right time. They've come not, you know, in a five inch gusher. It's been, you know, we get an inch here, we get an inch the next day. It's been, it'll be nice for a week or so, so the grass can actually respond. Um, and yeah, it's the moisture that we've gotten, the temperatures. I mean, it's just been, it's been great. And and speaking from someone that has a actually now somewhat okay pollinator plot that has been well documented throughout this series. Um, I, I mean, I would say that too. I would say every time I'm like, oh boy, it's getting hot. Here it comes. But then we have, then we have rains. Right. Then we have, I mean, it's just been a really good balance. I can't think of how many times I've even had to run my sprinkler, whereas compared to, you know, two years ago, I was running it every day, and I was like, I'm still, the only thing growing here is weeds, and right. it was good winter cover, but yep. I actually have, like, you know, chirping and things coming out of the, <laughs> things coming out of the pollinator plot now, too, so, I mean, I think you, I think you make a great point there, and I just, I had to get my plug for my pollinator yeah. plot in, particularly because, Alex, when you go to the fair here in a couple weeks, go check out what he has, because he will make you feel... If you are like me and trying to grow your own pollinator plot, very inadequate in terms of <laughs> right. in terms of what they have grown around that office. We try, we try. Yeah. It's, now it's, it's the let's, best. Let's talk about, you know, spring. We got through spring, got in, you know, got through it really well, like you said. And peak peak hatch, South Dakota, June twenty eighth. Is that about right? For, usually, for yeah, usually that third week in June is what we kind of consider peak hatch. You know, I always kind of just go back to that June 20th to June, yeah, probably last week in June. Um, sure. You know, it just, just depends on what spring holds. But, yeah, kind of the, the notion is about that time frame. Right. And and I, I've always been one, ever, especially since I started working here and working with, with you know uh, Tony Life and Switzer and 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 Tommy K and and Runia before you to be looking you know don't just look for pheasants and and broods you know try to get out and and look at brood sizes and and that'll give you kind of a good idea at least you know at least initially on how the hatch was and and the cover that's around it and stuff and I for one I'm telling you I've been driving around the pier and I've spent a lot of time going back and forth between here and Siston in the last month and a half and it seems to me like the broods that I'm seeing are much bigger than the last year but especially two or three years ago it seems like those those clutches man there isn't three or four around mama there's you know seven to double digits is that kind of what you're seeing in here in two or not yeah i mean i've i've been glued to my computer for the last couple of weeks so it's a it's i wish i could get out in the field and really do it but i the reports that i've been hearing from our land crew guys from some landowners around they are they are seeing some good sized broods and you're absolutely right i mean the the broods are what really what make up the pheasant numbers and that's kind of getting back to that brood success i mean our nest survival is pretty consistent throughout time you're always talking roughly 30 percent um but that brood survival is something that can really kind of bump up your numbers. Um, you know, if you like you said, Chris, if you have three chicks, oh, that's fine and dandy. But if you were to raise six, eight, nine, I mean, that's you're 600 times more than what you had for that hen 
um, right. what she produced. So, yeah, I've, I've heard some good reports of broods, um, good sizes. I've heard gamuts anywhere from ones that are already starting to get their color and uh, starting to, you know, be big, which is uh, be really nice to see because those early clutches tend to be kind of our most successful and they're, they're best set up in case we do happen to get another winner. Um, you know, like last mm-hmm. winter or even even worse. So it, it puts them in a little bit, little better uh, fitness for that. Um, all the way down to ones that were, uh, you know, still could barely fly, uh, and that just kind of shows how what the reproductive potential are for these birds. I mean, they can they can certainly um, they've been even known to almost double their pheasant populations from one year to one year to the next when they've been able to have the right nesting conditions. Um, you know, good good weather, um, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so. Yeah, it's it's just uh, I think it's I think I think we're setting ourselves up for a pretty decent fall. So so Alex, with these broods, one thing again, uh, amateur pollinator plot grower here, I'm seeing a lot of grasshoppers in that pollinator plot more so than I'd seen. I mean, is that kind of what we're looking for? I mean, how what are those broods keen on? How do I know if they're going to be successful or not? What what should I look to expect? Yeah, I mean the the first eight weeks of a, a chick's life, they basically exclusively in insects. And that's where they get their moisture. That's where they get the water, all that sort of stuff. And it's kind of, people kind of forget that, you know, they see them foraging out in, in cornfields, fields, all that sort of thing. And they don't realize that a lot of the protein that they get to actually grow and, you know, become an adult is a lot from those insects. So we always promote, you know, what we consider good brood habitat. And brood habitat, you know, for those that aren't familiar with a brood is, is just pretty much a gaggle of baby pheasants. Um, a good brood habitat has a good uh, overstory where they can't get picked off by predators above them or seen from a distance, but yet it's open enough that I like to describe it, you could shuffle through it. You could put your feet together and you could shuffle through it where you wouldn't be able to see your feet, but you wouldn't trip over yourself. Um, the, the more open the bottom is, it's easier for those chicks to kind of go around, forage, easier to catch stuff. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Nick. Grasshoppers, ants, I mean, they're they're not really that selective when it comes to what they're eating. They're going to pick up. They're just like us. They're going to eat the easiest meal they possibly can. Um, and then by providing a whole bunch of different types of insects out there, we're giving them more to choose from. Nope, that makes sense. And I even had, I, I was thinking about, well, as you were saying that, I was walking through my pollinator plot in my head, and then I stopped because I have a bunch of snakes in there. So I'm going to suppose that's good. No bad snakes that we've seen. Yeah, There's well, snakes. yeah, no, all, all snakes are bad snakes to Nick. Just got to say that, too. <laughs> um, almost led to a unprescribed burn. We had, one, we had a couple climbing up a little bit into that overstory, and that wasn't cool. Uh, um, but no, I mean, I think, when I think about the things, I mean, that's exactly, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head with what folks can, can look to see and what they look to expect. And I mean, for what I've seen, this is, this is looking good on my end. Alex, you, you and your predecessors have done a good job of training uh, Nick and I and, and a lot of other staff about when we're at the fair or we're at Pheasant Fest or we're at a sports show or when we're even talking with the public you know, you start talking about pheasants and, and the conversation really does have to start with, start and end with what kind of habitats on the ground. Um, you know, that goes from CRP to, you know, uh, like Nick's, Nick's uh, brood plots or flowering plots, some of that kind of stuff. What are you hearing from folks that, you know, that are seeing even, you know, with that CRP and that on the ground habitat? I mean, I, I, I know we've lamented it you know, that that there's not as much of that general CRP available in South Dakota, but there are other projects and programs that you can get into, whether they're ours or whether they're somebody else's. But so I guess it's a two-faceted question. 
I mean, obviously it starts and ends with habitat, but what are you kind of hearing and seeing and, and are folks taking advantage, landowners, producers taking advantage of some of these other products and projects that are out there available? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of, uh, like you said, Chris, pheasants really, they do really well with idle grassland, which comes from CRP, stuff that, you know, has been planted there, it's sit to rest, it doesn't get grazed, it doesn't get hayed, you know, it might get hayed, hayed or, or burned once in the contract for mid-contract management, but it pretty much just stays idle, has that resi- residual cover um, there for the nesting season for in the springtime for those early nesters. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of programs out there that guys are taking advantage of. You're right, general CRP hasn't been mo- the most attractive uh you know, type product for folks, these big, big type enrollments. And as a, as a pheasant biologist, you know, we advocate for large tracts of, of intact grassland for pheasants. Um, you know, we try to manage grassland at a minimum of about 40 acres in size or larger. Um, that's kind of our, our general rule of thumb when it comes to having some good nesting cover. Uh, there's other programs out there, um, you know, like WRP, other sorts of easement that offer cover. And even like a year this year with uh, even just driving around, some of the pastures that I've seen, they're almost functioning like CRP because mm-hmm. we've had enough moisture and that grass has responded so well that you're driving around in mid-August. And uh, for those guys that do a responsible grazing, they have the right stocking rate, you know, you can all you can see is the head of the cow. You know, yeah. they're they're the grass is all the way up to the back of it. And I mean, that's that's the type of stuff that you want to see. It's good for the producer because they know there's a ton of forage out there um, and they're you know, their cattle aren't going to go hungry. They don't have to supplemental feed. But at the same time, it is producing plenty of cover for wildlife, too. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's we'll come back to a little bit of pheasant stuff, but let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, let's talk about grouse. Um, what's the difference between really good grouse habitat and really good pheasant habitat Ooh, that's I get a, this that's question a, all the time yeah that's a that's a really good question i mean when i think of grouse grouse just basically need grass i mean there are there are prairie species prairie ovulate species obligate species i mean when we're talking about grass we're not talking about 40 acres we're talking about sections upon sections upon sections of of intact grassland uh, that's you know grazed really well, um, offering about eight to ten, eight to twelve inches of residual grass after a grazing season, or or there in particular. Um, so, I if, if I'm going to go hunt blindly in like western South Dakota, I'm going to go try to find a spot on the map where I can walk for miles, and there's going to be grassland, and there's going to be little draws where they might have some buck brush and stuff, or or some. Uh, um, other types of forbs out there, native forbs that they can get some, you know, berries from and seeds from and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the grass that I'm trying to find, it has a wide diversity of, of different types of species in there, not just grass, but forbs, because, you know, like we got to, they like to eat insects, they like to eat buds, they like to eat leaves of uh, certain types of species, all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I consider grouse habitat is just a really good grouse habitat is just sections upon sections of, of just well-managed grassland. Sure. What 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 are you hearing on winter survival uh, from for, for grouse? So grouse are grouse are pretty short lived species, just like pheasants. You know, they have lower annual survival, really high reproductive potential. So I mean, you can get these boom and bust years depending on what type of what type of nesting conditions that you get. Um, we do some spring lek counts, which it's a, a lek is basically where males gather on the landscape in the spring and they dance for each other. I like to call it like basically their bar where they're showing off for the ladies. Right. <laughs> 
Um, so we, we know where these lex are. They're fairly static on the landscape. They move a little bit here and there, depending on how the vegetation responded, if they were disturbed, all that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, they're within a couple hundred yards of, you know, where they normally are, unless it, it gets totally, uh, um, you know, plowed under or way overgrazed or what have you. Um, and these hens actually pick within about a mile of these lex where where they want to nest. So it's a good focal re, focal point for like the reproductive ecology. So kind of getting back, I got a little bit off on a tangent. Um, like I said, I'm a bird nerd. So <laughs> when you get back to when you get back to lek counts, we do some lek counts um, on the Fort Pierre National Grassland. Um, the U.S. Forest Service also does lek counts as well. Um, and it was basically unchanged from last year. The sharp tail numbers, especially on the grasslands, they were down a little bit, and it was made up by the number of prairie chickens that they counted. So our spring spring lek counts aren't really indicative of like how the fall is going to be because all it is is it's kind of assessing what overwinter survival was um so it if it's unchanged from last year i would assume that survival is probably pretty normal um you know it, it, it's actually kind of encouraging considering the type of weather that we did have um yep. so that carryover hopefully in the nesting season was was pretty good yeah a couple things last year i saw my first brood of grouse and uh driving south up here and and on a gravel road and i stopped and kind of looked and i had to kind of tilt my head and look again because i'd never seen like baby grouse like a brood of baby grouse so that's pretty cool but also you and you just touched on it i think when when i really started hunting around pier and and i don't hunt a lot of grouse but i hunt probably more than most people um a lot of a lot of sharp tails predominantly sharp tails and now in the past probably five years, south of here, it's really switched where I think last year, you know, we shot probably 30 prairie chickens and two grouse. Um, for the folks out there, I mean, they're very similar. Their ranges overlap and stuff, but they are different birds. And it's just, it's just kind of interesting to me how that's kind of flip-flopped. So Yeah, they, you know, they're kind of an interesting species. Like, they're, they're uh, there's still, I believe, one or two leks located in Iowa, but I remember reading a book where, like, the daily limit in Iowa was 25 prairie chickens wow. in, like, the early 1900s or late 1800s. Or I mean, don't quote me on the actual date, but it just kind of goes to show that, um, you know, and then they, as as westward expansion kind of happened and we started getting more row crops, we started getting more smaller grains going, more, they really did foul the plow, you know. They're one of those species that, we do want to manage on a really big scale. We manage them pretty much the same as we do sharp-tailed grouse. You know, they have generally the similar or similar uh, habitat requirements, but they can tolerate a little bit more agriculture than a sharp-tailed could. And that's that's really why that Fort Pierre National Grassland has kind of been taken over by prairie chickens is because it's it is that checkerboard of good solid grassland that's managed by you know either us or the National Forest Service um, intermixed with some cropland um and uh, and that sort of thing so that that's kind of why we've kind of seen that uptick in the probably the last 20 years or so um and you know as you get farther west you you do start tapering out of chickens not that they're there by not there by any means but those sharp tails you know they're they're just a little bit less tolerant to agriculture they like the grasslands more are just straight up grasslands um and you just kind of run into them both around pier because they have what both species need so so alex 
I'm let's say I'm a pheasant hunter and I've been I've been coming to South Dakota a lot and I am listening to this and I want to start getting more into grouse hunting or prairie chickens. Where should I go? Where should I look for these species and and as I'm hunting them, I mean, how would do my tactics change? What what do I need to know about that? But first off, where where should I start planning my trip for really? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it kind of just depends on what you want to what you want to hunt. I mean, I I field a lot of calls from guys that are looking to shoot prairie chickens. You know, they maybe even come from western Montana or some of the even western states where they run into a lot of sharptails. They don't have the experience with prairie chickens. So generally, if I want if you want a mixed bag of of species, I I generally send folks to that Fort Pure National Grassland. It's a good area, tons of public land. Uh, I mean, you can walk for hours and days and all that sort of stuff, and you might see a speck of orange in the distance, but, I mean, you're relatively unbothered. Um, so, like, that central part of the state uh, around that period is usually where you get a good chunk of, a good mix of sharp-tailed grouse and prairie chickens. Farther west you go, um, then you run into more sharp-tails, um, you know, it's, and then even in, it's kind of crazy, and, Paul, you probably know this, too, even in northeast South Dakota, there's some, there's mm-hmm. some surprisingly good um, sharp tail grouse numbers on the Catoll. I mean, it's it's some good intact grassland there, and and they're there, and they they are kind of a a novelty there now. But I mean, it's certainly a huntable population. Yeah, we used to find them up up around Siston, up in the hills there, you know, west there, uh, and shoot a few. And people would look at us pretty strange when we'd have them. But yeah, you could certainly find them. Um, yeah, yeah. And then when it comes to the hunting tactics. Um, I mean, you just, you have to lace your boots up and be ready to walk. Uh, there, I, you know, I, I focus on hilltops, um, you know, maybe where I've seen birds before. Scouting is always a really good tactic. A lot of what, I've done it before where I walk out there right at shooting time and I'm, you know, seeing them coming off of their leks because they do kind of loosely lek in the fall. They, they do where they congregate back where the leks are in the spring. Um, mostly, it's, pro- we, it's probably just a guess that, you know, that's where they'll, they show where the young males where they need to go the following year. Um, so they kind of back go to those. So those hilltops where those leks are located, you know, you can always concentrate on those or those little draws where there are some buck brush, you know, some good cover depending on what the weather is. Um, but in for most cases, there's really no rhyme or reason to where where grouse are in the landscape. You just got to be ready to walk. I've done it where I've I've uh, walked a piece of public west of Huron about an hour and. Uh, walked three miles didn't even see a bird and i got back about 100 yards from my truck and right next to a road and there happened to be three girls that got up yep. i mean it's just it's just that crazy sometimes um and in order to be successful you just got to walk you got to have a dog that's in shape be uh kind of mindful of those warm temperatures because you can hunt them earlier in the year um you know mid-september um so you just have to be careful careful with that that's why mornings and evenings are always a pretty decent time to go. Um, you can see them bouncing back from where they're feel, where they're either feeding out an ag field or feeding out in you know a certain spot in the pasture, and you can kind of chase them down. And one good thing with with grouse is that they don't run like a pheasant. So I mean, if you see it land on that hilltop, just be quiet, make sure it can't see you coming, and you have a really good chance of of flushing that bird. Grouse hunting is walking to find out where the grouse aren't. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a that is a very good way of putting it. And the other thing is, you know, I, I never hunted them. We always had labs. My grandpa used to say there's three kinds of hunting dogs. There's yellow ones, there's black ones, and brown ones. Everything else is a barn dog, right? <laughs> so we had labs. And moving up here, you know, start hunting with people and oh, we're gonna go grouse hunting. And you bring their lab your lab and they've all got, you know, rangy pointers and, and everything. And and the the myth that a lab can't figure that out is 
is way erroneous because labs will figure it out. There, there's going to be some times where they're you're out walking on these hilltops like you're talking about, and your dog turns around and looks at you and you're like, what are we doing? Are we just going for a walk? You're in, you're in your hunting gear, you know? But they do figure it out. I've got a young, a younger lab that, man, she figured it out first time out. And, and it's fun to kind of watch them like expand how they work and to really get a chance when you're, when you're grouse hunting to watch that dog all the time and watch them get birdie from a long ways away and kind of figure out, okay, I got to work these birds a little bit differently. I got to hunt a little bit differently. So just a, just a little plug for the lab, lab hunters out there. You can hunt grouse with labs. Lots of people do it. So. Oh yeah, I absolutely. I got a lab. I take her out every year. It's a, it's a, honestly, it's a great warm up form for pheasant season. Gets the yeah. dog in shape, gets you in shape, uh, gets them to work their nose. And mine works a little bit closer than what a, a pointed yeah. wood or short hair or something like that. And I, and I like that. Um, and that, that's just kind of one of my, you know, one thing that I do love about labs is they're a shorter ranging dog. So even she's mine's really excitable so you know she she points and that sort of stuff and she does really well pointing late in the season but she doesn't quite have it fine-tuned when it comes to grouse season quite yet so she'll run up into a whole covey of grouse flush every single one of them and if she didn't happen to be a closer ranging dog i wouldn't even have an opportunity for it right so Nesting habitat conditions this spring for grouse pretty similar. I mean, are are they do they respond to, you know, obviously this year we had a had ideal for pheasants coming off the winter, but are we looking kind of that same same idea for grouse and chickens too? Yeah, when you I mean when you look at usually our grouse production is highly correlated with um, June average precip or June average temperature, excuse me, and that's really indicative of a drought. So when you have a warm June, it usually means that you have a drought and that impacts uh, your insect production for chick survival, your nesting conditions for actually having residual grass there, as well as it being really hot. Sometimes those chicks can't even handle the stress and they just end up passing away from heat exhaustion. Um, They can't quite thermoregulate like an adult could. Um, So we did have a we did have a warmer than average June, but at the same time, we got moisture in june i mean you look at the drought map in western south dakota even central part of south dakota and there is hardly a speck of even abnormally dry out there i mean i can't remember the last time i looked at a drought map for western south dakota and didn't see any red yellow whatever on the maps that uh nebraska puts out university of nebraska puts out for the drought monitor i mean it's i think it's going to be really good i've heard some reports from some ranchers that they've been seeing a lot of grouse um talking to staff out there i mean i i I think one of the important things too is it it makes hunting a heck of a lot easier when you have that grout that grass out there because you have holding cover for those birds you know they they like to sit on hilltops and look and i mean that's just how they how they you know stay safe is they sit on the hilltops they stick their head above the grass and they watch for anything coming so if that if that grass is you know 12 inches and grazed responsibly i mean it gives you an opportunity to even go up there and you know get a shot at them right so, so Alex, we've touched on this a bit, and this is something that I find particularly interesting. We have a lot of critters talked about on this podcast. I mean, we had Rocco on uh, before you, and we talked about how Canada goose can live to be 20 years old. Um, we've talked about how paddlefish are literal dinosaurs. So, I mean, when we're talking about these upland birds, we keep talking about how they're relatively short-lived. I mean, if I came hunting here in 2019... 
how many of these pheasants are still there? How how short lived are what is short lived? And and when we talk about this on a year to year basis, how is this a little bit different than, say, uh, a big game animal that we're probably talking in, you know, three to five years as opposed to one to two years? Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a very slim chance that that rooster that you're chasing is, you know, probably older than two years old. I mean, in, in most cases, anywhere from a year to 17 months is kind of the average lifespan of it. I mean, from the moment that that egg hits the ground, something is trying to eat it or kill it every day of the year. Um, so, I mean, that that's just that's kind of the perspective that you have to get put on. So if you're here in 2019, there's probably very few roosters and probably even more fewer hens that were around back then. Um, and that's kind of getting back to that recruitment thing, you know, in order to really have it's pheasant hunting can be very boom and bust. It's strike while the iron hot is hot type mentality because you could have great nesting conditions and produce a ton of birds. Um, but just because of maybe a hard winter um, or just the nature of predation in general, um, it's going to take a lot of those birds out for the following spring. Um, and that's one reason why we have a fairly liberal season. You know, we've lengthened it, especially with a rooster-only harvest. Um, and we know that roosters, you know, one rooster can mate up to 20 hens and still be fertile. Um, so it, it is it is one of those things where we can take those surplus birds out of there because odds are they're not going to be there next year anyways. Grouse, grouse the same way? Pretty much. Grouse are, yeah, grouse have pretty low annual survival as well. It might be a little bit higher, and again, it always depends on what type of what type of landscape they're in, how right. their habitat is. But yes. So, so what I've got out of this is, if I am a pheasant, well, particularly a grouse, if I was a grouse, that's not good for me because something's trying to always eat me, and I have to dance to attract mates. Yeah. So that just sounds You're like done. the worst possible You're scenario done. for You're me. Done. <laughs> Hey, Alex has been after me. This is kind of behind the scenes, but Alex has been after me for for a while now. You guys have, a, and we're gonna. I'm getting you on the podcast just for this, especially too. But you've got a kind of a grouse research project that's still going on. Yeah, we've uh, we just we actually have two going on right now. Uh, one is uh, just concluded up northeast of Watertown. We're looking at the impacts of a wind energy facility up Same. there, and potentially any. Um, you know, nesting survival, brood, brood survival type impact on it. Um, the report, uh, we're actually just doing the publication right now. Um, cool. I, so I don't want to give any results because, right. uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of one of those bam, here it is type, right. uh, type right, aspects. Right. But that was a three-year project, and it was really nice because um, it was one of those opportunities where we collaborated with the wind facility or the wind company that's putting up the tower. They're really good to work with. Um, you know, they, they – um, Put their money where their mouth is when it comes to funding the project and, and wanting to know um you know the impacts it has on grouse uh you know for mitigation purposes for future wind turbine facilities so you know they know that they're doing their due diligence um you know as well as us we're taking some good hard data making informed decisions um and trying to find a balance between an energy company and then a, a company that's good with you know natural resources um so that one just finished, and then we're we're in the middle of a project just west of here on about 40 miles, looking at very similar things um, with sharp-tailed grouse. And it's kind of cool because these two projects were the first ever uh, wind energy facility, facility um, impacts on sharp tails in particular. They've done some research on prairie chickens um, and even some uh, uh, other sharp tails, other sharp tail subspecies out west. Um, but this is one of the first uh, first two projects, I guess you could say, with um, plain sharp tails. Cool, really cool. Um, let's let's switch just a little bit. Let's go. 
a little bit more practical, like as we're hunting them, get away from the birds and get away, get to the hunter. So as a as a veteran, and I get this asked this a lot, you know, we came out late, you know, you told us to wait for the snow, and and that's when I love to hunt them too. You told us to wait for the snow. God, we got out of the truck and and birds are blowing out, or we didn't, you know, we walked all this grass and never saw a bird, and it should be good bird areas. Like when you're late season hunting, how do your tactics change? I mean, I know how mine were, and we could talk about them, but what are you looking for? Times of day, cover, you know. What are you keying in on? You know, I I don't get super excited about hunting, you know, right at 10 a.m. when it comes to late season because depending on how cold it is and how much snow, like those birds are going to go out and forage. And if they are really stressed, they need to eat for a long time to kind of make up for it. So I, I like to go out, you know, that noon to mid, mid-afternoon type hunt um, before they go back out and eat in the, in the, um, in the uh, evening. Uh, just because I know they're going to, they're going to be back in the cover. They're not going to be out there in the open feeding in cornfield where they can see you coming from a mile away. Um, and then I, I, I focus on the thickest cover I could possibly imagine. If I had to go in there and I had to peel off layers, that just means that those pheasants are in there for a reason because they're trying to stay warm. So that generally, generally, um, incorporates really thick cattail sloughs and I'm in the James River Valley. So we got cattail sloughs everywhere. So that's generally what I hunt. Um, I'm looking for uh, a good solid slough that's, I mean, relatively big for me would be about 10 acres because that if I had maybe two or three guys that are going in there, I want to be able to cover it. I want to be able to send a guy around if there's a point that birds are bailing on. Um, I don't want to hunt these big mile long cattail sloughs because not only do you, well, your hip flexors be burning when you're done, but <laughs> I want to be able to, I want to be able to have good coverage on it, be able to have every inch of it uh, be searched by a dog all this sort of stuff because even if you do see them bail out of there there's always going to be more that are that didn't um yep. so i i mean i wouldn't get discouraged with that i think one of the most probably the key things that it took me a long time to learn is you have to hunt quiet i mean they they've been hunted since the middle of october and if you're in the end of december end of january you know that those birds they've heard truck doors slam they've heard lap tailgates drop they've heard kennel gates open they've heard guys yell at their dogs saying get back here don't do this don't do that so when my dad and i hunt we don't say a single word um i don't even i do a silent command system with my dog so i i bumper with their shot collar to to go left and right to stop to heal to do whatever um so i don't even have to say anything um and i think that's really important because those those birds can hear they they've been hunting for a month and a half. They know you're coming. Um, hunting quiet is probably the most successful thing, or most best thing you can do to be the most successful. So so he does have the skills to be a good archery deer hunter because yeah. I mean that's we've got. Uh, we've got nah, I don't have I don't have the patience for that. Yeah. <laughs> my my dad always said if you think you're hunting deer in the fall you're crazy. We've been feeding these dogs all year, so it's get to go. But Alex. One of the things that really surprises me, and, and I talk to people, and, and especially when I, I'm hunting with new folks, is, you know, the idea of using the wind is just like an eye-opening experience to them, right? If mm-hmm. if you're going to give me a perfect day, and even if the wind's, you know, five, okay, we're walking into the wind. Well, why? Well, you know, the dogs need to smell, and two, the wind is carrying your sound, and and I look back at all the pheasant hunts that I've had, and, and some of the best ones I've had were in 15, 20 mile an hour winds where you can still shoot, but that wind will, will cover up so much of your mistake. And it might even be to the point where it's it's 
hurting the dogs a little bit because the wind is so strong. But those those days where it's windy and you're looking outside going, eh, God, I wish it was flat calm. And those days, those are the days the birds are bailing out, right? And they're they're going, I'm out of here. I heard you when you were, you know, eight miles away at the gas station. But that, man, that 15, 20 mile an hour wind where you're just on the fence of, God, that's cold out. It's going to blow right in my face and right up my skirt. And, you know, God, I hate it. But for me, man, that covers up a lot of mistakes and, and it and it allows you to get to close that distance on those late season birds. You see that too, or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's almost second nature where I don't even, I like, I, I guess I didn't even think of that as a tip because it's, it's what I've grown up doing ever since right. I could carry a shotgun is, yep, we walk, we're going to walk it in the wind and it doesn't work for every single situation. Don't get me right. wrong. You know, you can walk into the, into a crosswind and all that sort of stuff, but yeah, hundred percent helps the dogs out hides any any sort of sound that you make sometimes even yeah just shooting like you know it muffles that where birds might yeah. be 100 yards ahead of you they they hear they can't even hear the volley of shells that you just had right. um and it yeah it just makes it easier it even hangs them up a little bit i mean if they yeah. had to if they had to fly into the wind it's a heck of a lot easier hitting them in front of you than it would be behind you when they're cruising 70 miles an hour get them before they turn <laughs> yes Yes. And I will say on the next podcast, we're going to talk about uh, proper clothing attire to hunt. We're getting, we're not getting that wear skirts out yeah, of the field. Skirt is a, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I probably should add too another, another really good tip that I, I tell a lot of non-residents is, especially since the hunting season doesn't start till 10 a.m., you know, go eat your breakfast, go support a local business, all that sort of stuff. But don't be afraid to head out there at 8.30 and do a little bit of driving around. I mean, the the most successful hunters are the ones that scout. I mean, if you're hunting only public, there might be a chance that somebody hunted that the evening before or what have you. And those birds might not be in the same spot they are. So drive around. If there's 50 pheasants adjacent to a piece of crep um, and that happens to be the only cover that's around there, I know where those birds are going to go. They're right. not going to fly two miles away to go sit in a, another slough. They're going to go right back to that easy cover because they wanted an easy meal. So it just kind of keys into those areas. You can mark spots off on the map. Um, you know, don't head here because we haven't even seen a track in the snow or anything like that. It just makes it a heck of a lot more successful. Right. And you brought up crap and, and um, you know, for those folks who, you know, maybe don't know about it, it's, it's another kind of a public-private partnership. They get ex, uh, extended payments. It's in the Jim River Valley, uh, you know, Huron, think Huron, Aberdeen, going south and east. But there's also a big Sioux crep that we're signing up land for. That's private ground, a lot of slough cover, a lot of grass cover. Up in up in Alex's country and going north, there's a lot of slough cover, a lot of great winter cover. And it's it's open to the public. So it, it is amazing the tools that that we have, you know, even, you know, if you add onyx and all those things. And when Nick and I go to like Pheasant Fest in in other states, man, a lot of people do their homework before they come. Mm -hmm. They they use our tools and they know the atlas and they know that, you know, our maps and how to navigate them better than we do. And they've got that stuff, man, ingrained into them. And it, it, it's kind of nice that you, when you provide that stuff, people are using it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the the big river or the uh, big Sioux crep is, is pretty pretty exciting you know the enrollment's been a little slow just because it's obviously not the time of year where normal crp would enroll but i mean we need to get some habitat back on that part of the state and i think that's a great that's a great program to do it because it like you said chris it's it's a crp federal program and we just so happen to basically lease the hunting rights for the guy the producer's happy because they're 
have land that might not have been produ- producing very well. They're getting an annual payment for it. They don't have to at, they don't have to be hassled by anybody calling them saying, hey, can I hunt your slough or whatever. It's just there. It's signed. Um, you know, and there's just depending on where you go in the state, the landscapes of them are, are awesome. You know, you go to up here, there's a lot of slough, low-lying country intermixed with grassland. You go down into uh, some other spots down by like Salem and McCook County. Um, you know, that one's predominantly uplands. So there's a lot of good grass there. They don't mm-hmm. have quite the slough density that we have. Don't, don't get me wrong, there's still some there, but you can kind of get a whole array, whole different array of different types of landscapes to hunt just with that those one that one berry program. Yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. And it it uh, you want to talk about hip flexors? <laughs> Start walking through some crap in December here, wondering if your uh, life insurance policies are up sometimes. But let's get into dates, pheasant dates. Starting off, youth only season is that the last? Is that last thirtieth? Thirtieth of September, right? Yeah, that yeah that is. Yep, yep, yep. So October eighth, that's youth only. That's public ground, right? That, I believe, yeah, I think youth is actually a, a public or uh, private. Oh, yeah. It's it's only the resident only. Right, that is you're right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. yeah, we're really on top of these questions. Good job, Chris. <laughs> and then that next week, then we're looking at the resident only, and that's October 14th, 15th, 16th. That's a three-day weekend, and that is public public land only, resident right. only. Yep. yep. And that's gotten to be a bigger deal. And I, and like, but I go up, you know, I go up towards northeast, and and I went, was it last year I went for a day and I drove, you know, past Aberdeen towards Siston and I didn't see anybody. Yeah, I was blown away. It's kind of one of those, it's kind of one of those weird, uh, weird seasons where like some years it's super popular and some years it's not. I mean, I get it because that first week of October, sometimes it's 80 degrees. And right. really the last thing I'm thinking about, um, you know, is maybe going out and walking for a rooster, but you know, one of those things that uh, you can be really successful is those evenings. I mean, you go yep. out the last two hours of the night, uh, you know, you're not in shape, your dog's not in shape. You can just go out for a quick hour or two, walk, you know, get an opportunity at shooting a couple roosters. Um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of a good little tune-up uh, tune up season that I, I think people will certainly take advantage of it. But I yeah, it, it just really depends on the year. It's super popular around here. I mean, it's, you know, it it's people talk about it people get excited about it but i was shocked i drove around and i had to look i thought i was on the wrong day which for me obviously might have been (laughs) very well been (laughs) and then traditional season a little bit later this year 21st october is when we're getting rolling for that so that's uh that's christmas for pretty much all of us and then we go all the way to the end of january so hopefully we get a little bit of winter more conducive to, to hunt in January and, and late December. Cause that's my family. That's what we have always done. I mean, we always kind of like Thanksgiving was the, was the one where my dad was really like, okay, now we're getting serious, you know? So. Yeah. But, I, I, I told ahead. all the, I told, told all the non-residents last year. It's kind of funny, you know, they were asking me in October and November and it was kind of warmer. I mean, it wasn't warm, but it was dry. And right. dogs were having kind of a tougher time getting sent. You're still seeing birds, but you knew it could be better. And like that first, second week of November, I was just like, just pray for snow. Come in December and pray for snow. And then everybody called me in December, <laughs> and I was like, I think you prayed a little too hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a dog sled, you ain't good here. And then grouse season, uh, partridge season, September 16th, it starts. And that only runs till the 7th of January. 
So the the biggest takeaway I've got from this conversation right here is we're sitting here in August, we're starting to plan our trips, but it sounds like we need to get both the dogs and the people out getting their yeah. exercise and their work in now, and everybody make sure their hip flexors are in good shape because those are gonna get a right. those are gonna get a lot of work is what I'm getting out of this. Yes, you know that early season hunting, it's no matter how much you do in the summer because it's hot. You know I like to swim my dogs, so I swim them all the time, but there's no there's no replicating going out and, and hunting for, you know, a half a day. So that early season stuff, man, you really got to be on it and keep those, you know, those trips shorter, you know, a couple hours, really got to manage those dogs and switch dogs in and out. We all like to hunt with our own dogs and stuff, but man, it's, it's tough on them. They're under, you know, they're under that undercarriage he's talking about, and they're just struggling to get a breath sometimes. And, and especially if it's dry, Man, it's tough. The cover can be green still, even a little bit. It's tough on those dogs, and and I, you see it every year. You know, you got these dogs. Yep, my dog's awesome. And it's like, yeah, that dog is awesome. I've hunted with it. It's also twenty pounds overweight. You know, because labs will eat everything they put in front of them. So it's a big thing to worry about. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, as we kind of wrap up here, I mean, Alex, last thoughts for someone looking to to plan a trip to South Dakota, maybe decide when they're going to hunt this year. What's the number one piece of advice you'd give them right now? What should they expect? Um, I I think you're uh, you're going to expect a pretty decent year this year. Um, like I said, the you know the winter definitely was certainly challenging on. We can't we can't not acknowledge that. Um, but we've had such a good nesting season that I think I think our production is going to be pretty good this year. Um find your area pick a spot don't be afraid to drive around you know a lot of guys that i talk to especially from you know 15 16 even 20 hours away um don't pigeonhole yourself into one town i mean if if it if you're walking around there and just so happen to not be doing very well don't be afraid to drive 45 miles down the road to another piece of public i mean you've already driven 20 hours what's another 45 minutes in your truck right um you know, be prepared, know where you're hunting, um, you know, know what the regulations are, the rules for non-toxic shot, all that sort of stuff. Um, but just most importantly, go out there and have fun because South Dakota is a great state to enjoy in October, November, December. Um, pheasant hunting, it's it's bar none. I mean, it there's a reason why, um, you know, pheasants are so important to the state because it is such an incredible season. Um, don't be afraid to call your local game warden, your local biologist, you know, give them some tips or ask for some tips, tricks, how birds are doing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in an office in the middle of eastern South Dakota. I don't go up to Aberdeen very often, um, so I don't know exactly what the bird numbers are doing up there. I hear reports and things like that. So sometimes it's best to go straight to the horse's mouth and, you know, talk to those guys that do a lot of the driving around up there. And, um, you know, they'll point you in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Do some homework. You know, if you can scout, if not. Yeah, you got to make those calls, use those tools that we have available, um, you know, Onyx, all that other stuff. But we have, you know, our game production areas. You can look to see if there's food plots on them. You can look, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, thanks, Alex. Can't thank you enough. Uh, just because I asked Rocco, I'm going to ask you, your grad project, Nesting Ducks and Pheasants, give me the title and what you what you were looking for there. Oh, man, that was, like, that was like 13 years ago. I don't even know if I can remember the title but it was that old <laughs> i was uh i was looking at uh simulated harvest of of uh grasses for biofuels for cellulosic ethanol so what i did was uh had a bunch of fields that were hayed at different heights 
kind of simulating what a producer would do if they were to take their grasses in and make an ethanol product of it. And then I investigated how those different heights uh, impacted uh, duck um, and pheasant nesting. So I looked at nest success. Yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad we bring people smarter right. than us in this podcast. That makes this that makes this worthwhile for folks. And I will say that that's fascinating stuff. My brain would never even get to that point. But I will say this about Alex. When I was with Tommy Kirschman, when he was in that position, my first uh, like overnight thing we ever did is we went out to the grasslands and we were they had some uh, some grouse with little radio transmitters on them. And we went out there at night and we captured them with like nets. We found them with the radio collars and we found them, captured them with nets. And then we were counting the little chicks. And about 15 seconds in, Kirschman started a prairie fire out on the out on the grasslands with his. <laughs> with this muffler because he parked in tall grass. I'm going, well, I'm going to get fired. I wonder if I can go back to tourism. <laughs> so we'll give that to Alex. But Yeah, I'll knock on wood. That hasn't happened to me yet. But, I, yeah, I better I better go say a prayer after this. Right. But not for too much snow. But just, you know, just no, no not, for, not for too much snow. Just that not is, for that is a good tip, problem. especially for this year. There's a lot of grass out there, man. When you park, park on a spot where the grass isn't up you know, underneath your pickup and or underneath your vehicle because it's going to happen because there's a lot of grass out there this year. So, yep, absolutely. Alex Solom, senior upland game biologist for Game Fishing Parks. Thanks for your time, brother. It's good to see you as always. We'll see you in a few weeks at the fair, and I'll be calling you to talk about fair preparations really soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you All having right. me. Thanks, Thanks brother. It's out the